I want to draw our attention back to the book of Luke this morning. If you were with us last week, you remember that we left the disciples uh, in a boat, a boat that had been uh, swamped with water, and they were fearful for their, for their lives, that they were going to, to not make it through the storm. Jesus calmed that storm, and then the disciples are left in the boat. They're still in the middle of the lake. They're in the middle of this body of water, and they had this question that they asked of each other, who can this be? Who has the ability to do what we just witnessed Jesus do? Who is able to take us from, from death, near death, certain death, to calm sailing? That's where we left them last week in, in the book of Luke chapter 8, verse 25. When we come to our text this morning, Luke chapter 8, verse 26, we realize that we have left them in the middle of this body of water with this unanswered question, and then we read this in verse 26. Then they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, on the other side of this lake. When he, Jesus, got out on land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes and did not stay in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and said in a loud voice so that everybody could hear, What do you have to do with me, Jesus? You son of the Most High God, I beg you, don't torment me. For he, Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into deserted places. If we turn our attention to the book of, of Mark, where this is also recorded, we have a few more details about this man who was possessed by a demon. As soon as he got out of the boat, we read in Mark chapter 5, verse 2, as soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs. The graveyard was his home. No one was able to restrain him anymore, even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but had snapped off the chains and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And always, night and day, he was crying out among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. It's a little overwhelming to me when we stop just for a minute and, and listen to the details that, that Mark and Luke give us about this man's experience. Um, there's, there's many details that are left out, but what we're given is a pretty, pretty um, dramatic picture of how this man is living it's a little confusing, too, I think, when we read because there's, there's some things going on here. At one point, it sounds like it's one demon. At another point, it sounds like it's multiple demons. And we'll, we'll see that continue as we move through the text. But one of, one of my takeaways as I study this is that there's some confusion here. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But before we talk about the confusion, there's things here that are, that are not confusing. This man's life is a mess. I mean a mess. In fact, I, I might say it this way, this man had no control over any aspect of his life. Now, I'm not trying to compare what we're, what we're experiencing with the coronavirus and, and the changes, but honestly, there's times where it feels like control is being taken away. All the institutions and all the structure that we have had in our life, from, from school to work to church to gathering, shopping, everything has been altered or changed or taken away. 
And I've had moments where, and there's a little bit of self-pity in this moment, but I've had moments where I thought, you know what, I don't have control over anything anymore, it seems. It's not true, but that's how it feels. Here's a man who it can be said very accurately that he had no control over any aspect of his life. Neither Luke or Mark tell us how he got into this mess, the, the series of, of decisions that were made, what he did, what was done to him, what, were, what the, the text, both of these, these authors zoom in on is his living conditions, how he experienced life. He was possessed by a demon or demons, and as a result, he was not in control of his own physical body. He was not in control of, of how he lived or where he lived. There's, an, there's the, the indication here that even he couldn't control what was coming out of his mouth. And here's one of the, the confusing aspects of this story is to know when he is speaking and when the demon is speaking. I keep wanting to say raise your hand, but if, if, so if you're at home, just and there's a few people here. Anybody else kind of confused about that? Okay, good. Who's talking at any given moment? Because it starts off with saying that he saw Jesus, he runs to Jesus, he cries out, and then... He says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, you son of the most high God? Don't torment me. And now it seems like the demon is speaking, and that will become clear as it plays out. But Luke tells us that Jesus had already commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. So now it seems that the demon is speaking, or demons. So there's a little bit of confusion, and I would say that he was probably confused as well. But there doesn't seem to be any aspect of his life that he has control over. He's, it, we're told in Mark that he's cutting himself with stones. He's, he's abusing his physical body. He, he doesn't wear clothes. He's not taking care of himself. I don't know what his diet was. We're not given any details, but can you imagine? What do you think he ate? You know, I don't want to gross this out, but I thought about that. What, 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 is, what is he eating? Is he eating garbage? Is he eating scraps? Is he eating something worse? We're not told. He's not, he's not in control. And Mark indicates that he's just crying out randomly. He's just shouting out things. His voice, his actions. I imagine that internally there was great turmoil in this man's life. He seemed to have no control over any aspect of his life. The other confusing or challenging aspect of the story is the element of the, the presence of a demon. What is a demon well, when we look through Scripture, we see that a demon is an angel, a fallen angel is sometimes referred to. A demon is, is someone who chose to follow Satan. When we read in, in, in Isaiah and other places where, where Satan challenges God, Satan being a created being, and it tells us that a third of the created angels agreed with Satan and went with him, and they now serve him, and they are now referred to as demons. They're his army, if you will, to accomplish his plans and his will and we know through scripture that demons love to mess people up they love to mess people up they love to destroy what god loves most and that's us it's his creation people they love to mess up they love to destroy what god loves most and so again we don't know the circumstances of how it happened and and this morning our, our focus is not to to take a journey along those lines but maybe there were some decisions he made maybe there's decisions that were made for him we're not told in either account how he got here we're just told that this is where he ended up when i studied this man's life and i reflected on our situation I wonder if we ever had feelings similar to what he was feeling, 
this idea of not being in control of your life? Have you ever felt like you just were not in control of your life, of what was happening around you and to you? Have you ever experienced, and I'll explain this phrase, have you ever experienced the death of hope? By, the, by that phrase, death of hope, I mean that morning, that moment where we just stop trying. We, we stop thinking, we stop looking for solutions because we just resolve ourselves that this is the new normal. This is how my life's going to be. Now, it may not be as dramatic as, as this man's, consuming the whole life. It might be an aspect of life. It might be a relationship. It might be a habit. It might be a sin. It might be something that we're addicted to. But we come to this moment where we have tried so many things, we've done so many different things, but the reality is it seems like it's out of my control. And we just, it's, it's not a, the death of hope is not to fanfare, it's just a quiet, solitary moment. And it usually happens in here. Sometimes we don't even notice it until afterwards that we pass through it. That is, we've just given up hope that anything can change. This is my life. And I'm convinced that's where this man was at. We we're given some details of, of efforts that other had done. Ever tried to help someone else? Change their life? Go a different direction? Come alongside somebody? And have it blow up in your face? This literally blew up in their face, didn't it? They, they chained him. They tried different things. Let's lock him up. Let's do something. We've we got to help him. This man, he's, he's going to destroy himself. And everything that they had tried, everything that had been done to him and for him had failed. There's no more hope that anything is going to change. I want to ask you another question that I think is, is important for us right now where we're at. And we need to apply it to our current situation have you ever judged someone else based on their circumstances? Have you ever looked at someone and said something to this effect? Well, they made their bed in it, now they need to sleep in it. We look at them, we, we judge the circumstances, we judge the mess that they're in. And we blame them, we judge them. Can I, can I this has been on my heart this week. I want to encourage us, if you're watching this morning and you are a follower of Christ, you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, and we're, we're discussing this, and, and, I, and I, I just, I want, I want to challenge us in this way. Judgment can never be our first response to the moment that we're in. We've been in this moment to, in some effect before. Some will remember the 80s. Do you remember what happened in the 80s? This new thing came on the scene called AIDS. And much of Christianity, the first response, I'm not arguing against truth, I'm not arguing against truth and grace, I'm just suggesting that we're prone to make judgment our first response. And we can look at what's happening, and we can, it might be the government, it might be officials, it might be the people themselves, it might be the young people on the beach, I don't know, it could, you know, that are not on, it could be anybody. There's no doubt in my mind that people in this man's life looked at him and said, well, he made his bed, now let him sleep in it. This is the result of his own choices. And though this is not my, my primary focus this morning, this just kept bouncing around in my head this week. We have so been guilty as Christians of making judgment our first response to things that happen in our world. And we see no judgment from Jesus. Do you see that? 
You read back through it again. You find any evidence. Try to find any evidence of Jesus judging this man. He doesn't. He doesn't say, well, you know, five years ago, if you had made this decision or if you'd made better choices or if you hadn't done this or if you had trusted me instead of, you know, I mean, you, you did something to invite this demon in and, and this situation you're in, it's surprisingly absent from the narrative. Jesus did not judge him, and as his followers, we need to examine our hearts. I want to encourage us to examine our hearts to make sure that there is not a spirit of judgment in our thinking and in our in our hearts as we navigate this set of circumstances that we're in and the people that we're interacting with. Our first response to this moment cannot be judgment. So Jesus in this setting asks a very interesting question to me, verse 30. He says, what's your name? Now, I just this would have not been my first question. I can think of many others that I would have liked to, to ask. But Jesus looks at this man and he says, what is your name? Now, again, the confusion comes in. Is he asking the man his name or is he asking the name of the demon? You notice the response. What is your name? Jesus asked him. Legion, he said, because many demons had entered him. At some points, it seems like one demon. Other points, we're told that there were multiple demons. The word legion, the name legion, there, that was a com- it was a word used in that day, and it described a group of soldiers in the Roman army. Now, for a Roman army legion, that was five to six thousand men. I don't believe the intent is to say that there's five or six thousand demons in this man. I think the name legion is just communicating what it says here: that we're many, we're many, we're more than one. And they begged him, they, Luke uses a plural, they, the demons, begged Jesus not to banish them to the abyss. To the abyss. This is a word that shows up multiple times through Scripture, and it always points to the same place. It's the, it's the judgment place for Satan and his demons, his fallen angels. And there are moments where they are cast there, there are moments where it's opened up. Revelation tells us there's a moment where the beast is let out of the abyss. It is a, it is a prison, it is a holding place, if you will, where God casts those who are at, at complete odds to him. And though we're given very little, we're told that smoke rises out of it as if there's a furnace in there. We're not given a lot of details. The idea of an abyss means something that potentially has no bottom that just goes on forever. So it could be the element of falling forever, the element of just being trapped, the element of heat and fire and pain. But notice that this demon, these demons, understand their destiny. They understand their future. They're not arguing that this is not their future. What they're arguing is not yet. Not yet. It's not the right time. Don't we have more time? Please don't torment us. Please don't send us, banish us, lock us up in the abyss. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drown. Anybody else find this weird? A a herd of pigs. Now, why are there pigs? Well, they're on the other side of of Galilee, so there's Gentiles over here where they raise pigs and and eat pigs. They don't in, in, the Jewish people don't. And so they're, they're, they're there. There's this herd of pigs that are being taken care of. But why do the demons ask to go to the pigs? 
We're not given the exact details, but here's my thought. I, uh, partly, I think it's just their plan. It's their plot. In the context, they're saying, don't, don't, don't banish us to the abyss. Don't send us there yet. Why not go into the people, be other humans? Because I believe they knew Jesus wouldn't allow that. That wasn't going to be an option. Hey, those 12 guys got out of the boat with you. Let us go into them. No, they know that's not going to happen. They see a herd of pigs. I think this is their plan to get away. He puts them into the pigs. The pigs drown. Did the demons drown? No. No, the demons didn't drown. They're not physical beings like we are. They're in the spiritual realm. And so this was their way to get away. They get into the pigs. The pigs, they run down to the, the water. They fall into the water. They drown. And the demons have a little celebration as they escape. I thought about this question. Why does Jesus ask this man's name? And I want to give you my thoughts, some thoughts on this. Why ask this question? What's your name? Here's what I think Jesus is doing. I think he is trying to make clear to, to everyone else what he already knows. He's trying to make clear the magnitude of this mess or this pain. I think they would understand that one demon living inside you could create havoc. They saw the evidence of that in this man's life. But Jesus points out, he reveals in this question that the, the magnitude of this man's mess is, is huge. Everything you guys have tried to do failed, right? Yeah, everything we did, nothing worked. I mean, this guy's got strength like you cannot believe. And he stinks, he's a mess, he's all scarred up, he cuts himself. I'm telling you, try to have a funeral in a graveyard where you got a guy running around screaming naked. I mean, I'm telling you, this guy is a pain. He, he, is, he's just, he's, he seems to be everywhere, and he, and he shapes our, our culture, our community. And, and he's been this way for a long time. We've never been able to change anything. In a question, Jesus says, what's your name? The people gathered there, the disciples, the others that had come, learned something. And here's what I think they learned, what Jesus is intending to do. And I would encourage you to maybe write some of these down. They're going to be on the screen. But maybe write a couple of these down. What is Jesus trying to do? Jesus wants you and me to know that he understands our suffering. See, what Jesus reveals in asking the name is what no one else knows, but he already knows. Right? There's no surprise to him when the guy says legion, the demon says there's lots of us. But he reveals to the rest of us that this man is beyond hope. There's no human strength that can set this man free. And Jesus wants us to know that he understands that. I understand what this man is facing. I understand the pain that he's in. Number two, Jesus wants us to know that no one is beyond his reach. No one is beyond his reach. What no one else was able to do no human effort, no community working together was able to transform this man's life. But Jesus was. He's able to do what no one else can do. And he wants us to know that, that we are not beyond his reach. Whatever our circumstances, whether, quote, our fault or not. Most of our stories, it's a combination, right? Of our fault and other people's choices made against us. Are you with me? Out there in, on this TV? Okay. And the people here present? Usually our story is a combination of the two. Bad choices I've made and bad choices others make that impacts me. What Jesus wants us to know, that no one, no matter how we got to where we are, is beyond his reach. Number three, he wants us to know that he is the boss of everything. I used that phrase last week. It takes me back to high school days. You know, you're not the boss of me. Well, Jesus was the boss of the storm. Jesus is the boss of these demons, is he not? They have to obey him. 
Do, do, you, do you pick up on the, on the fear in their, in their comments? There's not a question of whether or not Jesus can send them to the abyss. Oh, he can, in a word. They're begging him not to. He's the boss of anything that would harm us. Number four, Jesus wants us to know that he is our only hope. He's our only hope. There's certainly things that we need to do. We're being asked to do right now. We're being asked to, to uh, isolate, to you know, social distancing, different things. We're being asked to not do certain things, and that can play a very significant role in how this epidemic, this pandemic plays out. We have responsibility. But who's ultimately going to heal us? Who's ultimately going to put us back together? Is it man? Is it government? Is it the healthcare system? Or is it Jesus Christ? There's things that we have to do, but he is our only hope. And finally, number five, Jesus wants us to know him as Savior and Lord. Ultimately, what Jesus is looking to do in this man's life, all of us that are reading this, his 12 disciples, he wants us to know him as Savior and as Lord. He makes it very clear his authority in this moment. And so I ask you to, to consider what do you know to be true about Jesus? I had a conversation with someone this last week, someone, who was, someone in leadership who was very discouraged uh, in their, their leadership and their ministry, and we, we just got together and sat down. We stayed five feet apart um, at their dining table, and we had a cup of coffee, and we talked about what do we do in this moment. And I just I really wanted to encourage this man. He's a, he's a, he's a dear brother, and, and he's a faithful man. And we got talking about this, this idea of we need to ground ourselves in what we know to be true. Because in moments like this, there's so many things that we, we just, we, we, don't, we don't know anymore. How many, how many of you know when we're going to be back together in church again physically? I don't know. When, it, when is the shelter in place going to be lifted? I don't know. When is this, what, it, what is going to happen to our economy? I don't know. Do you? What's going to happen to our healthcare system? What's life going to look like after this? I don't know. And if I'm not careful, that's where I will find myself living, just filling my head and my heart with all the things that I don't know. Meanwhile, I have laid aside, I have ignored everything that I know to be true. And so as we talked around the, the table, it, it struck me where, where we need to begin is we need to just be clear on what we know to be true. And I challenge you, whether you're here present or you're watching, just take a moment in, in, in our time this morning and even after we're done with this service, begin to write down on a piece of paper what you know to be true. Put it on the left side of the paper. On the right side of the paper, write down the things you don't know. I'm, I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But don't live over on the right side, live on the left side. The questions to the right will grow out of the left. What do I know to be true about Jesus? This is one of those moments where Jesus is being very intentional. He wants those present, and Luke wants those of us that are reading this 2,000 years later, he wants us to have clarity on what we know to be true about Jesus. And he's using this man's life, he's contrasting himself with this man's life, that these things are absolutely true. I understand your suffering, Jesus says, you are not beyond my reach. I am the boss of everything. I am your only hope. And I want you to know me not as a good teacher, as a miracle worker, as just a, a young rabbi. I want you to know me as Savior 
and Lord. I want to set you free. You may not have a bunch of demons in you, but sin captures us and becomes our master, just like the demons did for this man. Can we, amen, agree to that? Sin does the same thing. It becomes our master. And we, we, we live a life outside of our control, if you will, because we give ourselves to this master. Jesus says, I want you to know me as Savior and as Lord. Well, the scene continues to play out. When the men who tended the pigs, tended them, the pigs, saw what happened, they ran off because they needed to go apply for unemployment because they no longer had a job. Not even a single chuckle here in the house. Hopefully there are a few laughters uh, in the homes. They ran off and reported it in the town. That's what that means. They were going to the unemployment office. Okay, still a little chuckle. When the men who tended them saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it in the town and in the countryside. They're telling everybody what happened. Then people went out to see what had happened. Word gets around. The whole herd of pigs are bacon. <laughs> Whatever, it's gone. And they all came out to see this man, to see this man named Jesus. And they found the man the demons had departed from sitting at Jesus' feet. And notice he was dressed and he was in his right mind. I think he took a bath. I think he took a shower. He cleaned up. Somebody brought him clothes. And he's, he, his right mind means he's able to think and converse. The, the basic idea is that he's talking. He's not screaming out. He's not crying. He's not cutting himself. He's probably talking with Jesus or maybe the other 12 disciples. Maybe Peter's got some questions for him, and he's sitting there in his right mind, he's conversing with people, and they were afraid. Isn't that interesting? Interesting, interesting response to the supernatural power of Jesus. They were afraid. Meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them, the pig herders, how the demon-possessed man was delivered. They laid out the story again. His people are saying, how did this happen? How did this happen? We, everything we've tried failed. What in the world and they tell him how it played out. Wow. Then all the people of the Gerasene region, these people that just heard this story, notice their response. They ask Jesus to leave. They were afraid and they asked him to leave because they were gripped by great fear. What's their fear? The only thing that we can, we can connect their fear to is this idea that Jesus has this kind of power. Wouldn't, wouldn't I, me studying this, maybe you too, I thought, this just doesn't make sense to me. Why wouldn't people be excited? Why wouldn't they be excited, this guy that's been a pain in the neck and he's been doing all this stuff and all of their, their attempts to, to protect themselves from him and to protect him from himself, everything they've done has failed. Had this, had this become like a tourist attraction? Where people, you know, come see, you know, we're at 2 or 3 o'clock today to come see the man running around cutting himself. I mean, it, had they just kind of embraced that this is how it is going to be? And everything we have tried, every, man's, every man-centered effort has failed. And this guy, Jesus, walks on the scene, and in a word, he changes everything. They were afraid of that. They were afraid of his power. Here, here's... Here's something that we need to make sure we, we understand in what God is asking of us today is the truth is there are some that will struggle to see Jesus clearly. And, and I, I want us to be aware of that because there's a couple of, of consequences to that. One is discouragement. 
I don't know how many of you listening have had the experience of sharing your faith with someone, telling someone how much you love Jesus, and have that person that you love, that person in your life, that person you work with, a family member, say, yeah, no, no. I don't get it. I don't need it. I don't want it. That's good for you, not for me. And how discouraging that is. Why? Because you've experienced the power that this man had experienced, the transformation that Jesus does in us. And because of your love for someone, your love for God, you want them to experience that transformation too. But the reality is some will struggle. Some would put the word in there, many will struggle to see Jesus clearly. The people in this area saw Jesus as a threat. And they were afraid of him. And all they knew to do was to ask him to leave. Would you please leave our lives? Jesus, I don't know if he's thinking this. That's what I'm thinking. Jesus, I'm here. Did Jesus come here intentionally? Seems to be, right? He gets us in the boat and they come across in the storm. And then he says, let's, let's sail over here, paddle over here. He comes over, they get off the guy. This seems all intentional on Jesus' part. I, I want to bring this to you. I want you to know who I am. And the people, yeah, no, we just, we would really, if we have a choice in this, we really would just ask you to leave. This is too much for us. If we think about, for those of us that have been a part of this study in the book of Luke, it made me think of this, takes us all the way back to the beginning, that the author, the human author of this gospel, Luke, is writing it so that his friend can see Jesus clearly. He wants Theophilus, if you open up your, your Bible to the, the opening verses of Luke, you'll see it there. Luke says, Theophilus, I'm writing this for you so that you can see Jesus clearly. You would know exactly who he is and what he's capable of. The reality is many will not, many will struggle to see Jesus clearly. So the scene plays out, Jesus is asked to leave. And in fact, we just read that he, he begins to do that. He gets into the boat, right, at the end of verse 37. Jesus gets into the boat, and he returns. He's going back to the other side of the lake. But as he's doing this, verse 38, the man from whom the demons had departed kept begging him to be with him. So I think they were sitting there talking. I think Jesus was having a conversation with this man as people came up, and he's, he's filling him in. This man is so excited to learn more about Jesus and who he is and how did this happen and, 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 and coming to terms with that Jesus is his Savior, his Lord. And they're having this conversation, and he is soaking it up, and the people come, and they say, you know what, just Jesus leave. You know, we, we can't handle this. And the man says, wait, 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 wait. Take me with you is what he's saying. Do you see it there? Take me with you. I want to be with you. He kept begging him to be with us. Jesus, take me with you. Wherever you go, I want to go. I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you. I want to be with you. But Jesus responds to that by this. Look at your Bible. He sent him away. Now, if that's where the, the text ended, that would, that would, at the very the best that I can think of, that would be confusing to me. Anybody else? That would be confusing. This, Jesus, this man wants to be your disciple. He, you've transformed his life. He wants to, to live for you, to be with you. But Jesus sends him away and he says, go back to your home. Tell all that God has done for you. I hope you mark that or write that down or highlight that somehow. Go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. This man, we're told, off he went proclaiming throughout the town all that Jesus had done for him. Here, here's something that we cannot miss. 
the people asked Jesus to leave. And not too, too long from this moment, a group of people are going to get together and ask Jesus to leave. And they're going to be so adamant that Jesus leaves, they're willing to put him on trial and execute him. Because they want him gone. Who does Jesus leave behind? In this moment in time, for this particular part of the world, he leaves this man who is transformed. What is Jesus asking of us? What does Jesus ask of this man? What is Jesus asking? He's asking us to go to our home and tell all that God has done for you. Now we talk a lot about making disciples, and I think rightfully so, and we talk a lot about going, taking the gospel around the world, rightfully so. But I'm a little concerned that we have maybe miss something or we've lost sight of something that maybe part of our circumstances right now is God reorienting us and it's this, start at home. Start at home, husbands, wives, right there, fathers, mothers, parents, children, um, and I live in a cul-de-sac and there's, a, a, there's a, like six houses, that's my home and there's people that live in those houses and it's possible for me to be faithful to be making disciples in, in all the ways that God's allowed for me to be a part of that. I can even go across the world to Africa or to, to Mexico and make disciples. But am I making disciples at home? Now I'm a grandfather. There's another grandfather in this room. Am I making disciples of my grandkids? See, there's all these opportunities. And, and this man's opportunity was to go with Jesus. He could, he could go with Jesus and walk with Jesus. And Jesus says, I want you to go home, and I simply want you to tell what God has done for you. So my challenge to you and me is, is this, are we doing that? Is this what's coming out of our mouths in our conversations with our circles that we are normally with? Our marriages, with our families, um, our co-workers, our neighborhood. God has given each of us a home, a, a circle of people, other human beings. And I wonder if we took a survey of those people, if we each took a survey of the people that we, we are intermixing with on a regular basis, would they consistently say, all Kurt really talks about is how Jesus changed his life? Or would there be people that go, what? I didn't realize that God had, that he had been changed. What is Jesus asking me to do at this moment? Go back to your home and to those who know you. And if I can say it this way, help them to see Jesus clearly. The people that God's put in my life and in your life, help them to see Jesus clearly. How do I do that? I don't have all the answers. I don't know what, what to, to say about the, the coronavirus and what's happening and, and what's God's part in it and what's going to happen. I don't, I don't have, I'm not that smart. I don't have answers to that. How do I help people see Jesus clearly? What does Jesus tell us? Just tell him what he's done for you. You can do that. If you're watching this morning, you're here, myself, if Jesus is our Lord and Savior, he is my Lord and Savior. He transformed me from the inside out. Jesus is just asking me to tell other people what he's done for me. That's his expectation. Tell others what God has done for you. Share with them. Now I want to take you back to that list that you're making. Share with them what you know is true about Jesus. If you've begun that list, I know this is true, I know this is true. Share with them what you know is true about Jesus. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have all the answers. You don't have to answer all the questions. 
God is not looking at you as a failure because you don't know how to answer people's questions. I do believe he's looking at us as disobedient if we don't tell others what he's done for us. That's what he asked of this man. I believe it's what he's asking of us. I want us to undergird this truth, support it, create a foundation for this concept that Jesus is asking us to tell others what he's done for us, to share with others what we know to be true about Jesus. And I don't know any other way to do this more, more powerfully or effectively than to come around the Lord's table. And so if you're here in the, in the auditorium, I encourage you to get elements. If you're at home, I want to encourage you to have those elements now prepared for you, um, for your family, if you're with your family. And as you're getting those and you have in front of you these physical reminders of who Jesus is, I want you to, I want you to ask these two questions. What do I know to be true about Jesus? These two elements tell me a lot, do they not? About what I know to be true about Jesus. And then the other question is, what has he done for me? What do I know to be true about Jesus? And what do I know that he has done for me? Because that's what he's asking me to share. And so when Jesus was experiencing that Passover meal with his disciples, he asked them to remember. He asked them to remember. If I can draw our attention to Matthew chapter 6, I know this is a familiar passage for, for many of us, but the, the word worry shows up in this text. And so if we have, we have the decision to make that we're either going to get clarity on who G, what we know to be true about Jesus and what he has done for us so that we can tell others or we're going to live on the right side of the paper, and I'll, I'll tell you right now, from experience, as well as just this is what God's Word says, if you live on the right side, you're going to be consumed with worry. You're going to be consumed with worry. If we're living on the left side of the paper, the things that we know to be true about Jesus, the things we know He has done for us so that I know what to tell other people, worry gets wiped out. doesn't take away the circumstances, doesn't take away the situation, but notice what he says in Matthew 6. This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink. Don't worry if you're going to have enough toilet paper. Crazy, but that's part of our journey right now. Or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow. Do you notice the birds aren't affected by the coronavirus? I don't know if you've noticed, but I have a little deck on my back, uh, my, my bedroom, a little patio, and I was out there the other day, and the birds are all doing their thing. They're chirping and singing, and, and you know, they're pairing up. There's a pair of turtle doves, and they were kissing each other on the, on the wire the other day, and the squirrels are doing their thing. He says, look at the birds. Look at the, the, the creation around you. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. They don't do all the things that we do because of worry, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. Again, look around. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So Jesus goes on to say this, don't worry. 
Don't worry. He hits it again. Don't worry. Quit saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For idolaters, those that don't know God and follow Him, they eagerly seek all these things too, and your heavenly Father knows that you need Him. This is a common experience for all humanity. So seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things that you need will be provided for you. Therefore, here's the conclusion. Don't worry about tomorrow. Many of you are worrying about tomorrow. Many of us are worrying about tomorrow. What's this going to mean for my job? What am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? What's going to, how, am I going to, how am I going to live? And I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to act like that's not significant because it's real. And worry is real. But we need to hear the words of Jesus. He's saying stop approaching the circumstances you're in by worrying about it. Because you're not going to do anything. Stop worrying about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Every day, each day, today has enough trouble of its own. Words were never more truly spoken, right? I'm looking at Nate. There we go. Thank you. Things change on an hourly basis. Jesus says, stop worrying What is the cure for worrying? How can I know for certain who Jesus is and what he's done for me? Can I encourage you to join me to come to the blood, the cup, and the bread, the blood, and the body of Christ, and hear these words from 1 Corinthians 11. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, on the night that he was betrayed, that Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant established in my blood. Do this. Drink this. Remember that as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, and as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to remember, I invite you to take the bread that represents his body broken for us and eat. And take the cup, take the juice that is in the cup and follow his instructions and drink. For it is as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. I hope we understand the significance of that phrase, his death till he comes. What do I know to be true about Jesus? That he died on the cross for my sins, was buried, rose from the dead, and set me free. What do I know to be true about Jesus? We started this morning in John 14. What do I know to be true? That he's gone to prepare a place for me and one day he will come back, return. Why? So that we can be together forever, throughout all eternity. What is Jesus asking of us? He's asking us to go home and tell what he has done for us. I want to encourage us to do that in the coming days and weeks. He's placed, some would say forced us to be sequestered, to be sheltered in place. He has forced us to be in proximity with a small group of people. What is he asking of you and me in this moment? He's asking you and me to tell 
what he has done for us, how he has transformed our life. Let's respond 